Larry Malkus, thank you for coming out today for the podcast. Appreciate it. Thank you, Mr. Scott. It's about time we've got you on. It's You're always right next door, office right there, you know, and I always have the sense that I ask so many English teachers, so I'm glad that we're doing this. No worries. Um, how did you, I guess, get to Gilman is my oh, first question for you. It's a great story. Um, so maybe a little different than some people. Um, I, um, my first real job outside of college was uh, working for Towson State University at the time in the internship and cooperative education office. And, uh, it, but it was a contractual state position, so it had no benefits, no days off, nothing. And um, I got tired of that, and I went to a temp agency downtown. This was like 96 and said, I'll take any job. Just find me a job where I can get like medical benefits and retirement, stuff like that. The next thing I know, I was interviewing for a development position, a database manager position, which is ironic because I was kind of a techno-phobe. But uh, Kate Radcliffe uh, hired me, the uh, former director of development, and I was in development at Gilman for two years. And, uh, and then the position of assistant in the college counseling office opened. Um, so what Rebecca Scott does now. And uh, I thought, well, I'd love to move over to the academic side of the school, you know, out of development at least. And they were very supportive, so I did that. Eva Turner was the director of college counseling, so I was her assistant for about two years. And she said, you know, Larry, why don't you try taking a class of English 9, a section, um, because I had studied English in college. I had been an English major for a while, and then an education major for a little while, and then ultimately a theater major when I graduated. But she said, take a class, take uh, these 10 or 20 college counselees, and give it a shot and see what you think. So I did, and then um, ultimately was a college counselor with two sections, and then right at the time that Mr. Baker was looking to transition to college counselor, I was looking to transition to just teaching. So we switched. Hmm. But that's how it started. So you can get into college counseling without having any degree or have done it before? You can just become a counselor? Yeah, I will, because I was the assistant in the office for a couple of years, I got to watch you know, Eva and right. at that time Ned Harris and Jeff Christ and and a few other folks, college counselors. But yeah, I don't think there is, I, I eventually got my master's in school counseling, mm -hmm. and there's a small, you take a class in college counseling as part of your graduate program, but I don't think there's a dedicated track to college counseling. Hmm. Was that a tough learning curve when you first came and you were advising or helping students with the whole college process? Mm -hmm. Had I not been the assistant in the office, it would have definitely been, but they made it, Eva made it very simple. Yeah. Yeah. It really, it, it really did come down to, um, and you know, Gilman prides itself on where its students go. So it's, it's, you know, it's not something that can be downplayed, um, necessarily in the community, but Eva was very clear that, you know, this was the result of a student's work in the upper school and, um, and that that's really what determined it. So the idea that there was something that that college counselors can do to like affect an outcome, you're right. Other than be like real familiar with schools and you know um, 
right you'd familiar with their with their charges their counselees other than that there's really you know it's mostly hand holding and guidance yeah that's yeah i was thinking that a lot of that job must be sitting down with students and families and just trying to steer them in the in the right direction the direction that makes sense exactly exactly we've had a couple of college counselors come on and i've i've been curious about that because it seems like a interesting position i mean mm-hmm. i think about that around this time of the year when i'm writing the college recommendation letters and i don't know just thinking about how I guess bridging the gap between expectations and reality and it's so competitive, you know, right. and there's so much pressure going on. It's dealing with a lot of those, you know, different uh, variables. Yep. And it, I think that um, along with like, there are some fun stuff, like you, you take trips to visit colleges and you become familiar with what they offer so that you can match students with schools that you're familiar with. But, um, I think what our office does so well, in addition to putting together like balance lists for students where they're going to meet a lot of success, is um, you know the school recommendations. You were mentioning the teacher recs. They write sort of a comprehensive four-year counselor recommendation, and that's really a you know apart from the students' essays, I think that the school recommendation offers the best uh, snapshot of a student for a school. Mm-hmm. So that's a big deal. When you first got uh, into the English 9 classroom, what was that like for you? And maybe what are some ways that you've kind of tried to stay the, the same and developed over the course of your career? Because you still teach English 9, right? And it's interesting that that's the class that you started with. Right. So I, I observed uh, Dan Christian and uh, John um, E. Schmick. So John Schmick's dad. Um, who had both been longtime English 9 teachers. Um, Eva was, you know, she was very clear that I should sit on some classes, and they both had very different styles. Mr. Christian talked a lot in class, uh, and, and stuff he said was brilliant, and the students took notes, um, and they were right there with him. You know, they, they got on that train, and, and he, he, I think, was able to foster that love of literature in them that way through his own sort of passion. Uh, Mr. Schmick was more like, uh, I'd like to hear the students talk. And so he would throw out, you know, prompts and conversation starters. And then he would kind of, you know, let the students have their discussion. So I got to see a bunch of different, or at least a couple different uh, ways of doing it. Um, but to be honest, I was I just focused on the stories. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was intimidating. I had never been a teacher, I was not certified, um, but the idea of discussing great stories, I could I could wrap my head around that. And were you always into that? Was English always your subject? I mean, obviously you studied it in college, but from a young age you loved books. I did, I did. I remember reading The Hobbit in ninth grade, and when I really started reading for fun, and it was a recommendation from another friend of mine who was a little ahead of me, and then he just started throwing science fiction and like Frank Herbert and um, other fantasy sci-fi authors, Piers Anthony, uh, my way. And I started reading series of books. And, um, you know, that's that I think is when I fell in love with stories. Wow, it's interesting because I loved books from, 
you know, as far back as I can remember, always reading, but I never got into like the science fiction and even Harry Potter was a bit of a stretch for me. The like, like fantasy, mystical, made up stuff. I never really Interesting. took to that. Yeah. That's like a part of my reading experience that I just don't have. Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, I, yeah, it wasn't until college that I got exposed to like, I, I remember reading The Catcher in the Rye in in high school. That was a, a chain. That was a, a great experience to to see myself in a protagonist and relate to a character that way. That was real, you know, not fantasy or sci-fi. And then I remember reading A Clockwork Orange uh, as a senior, and I did sort of a, a capstone project on that senior year, um, and that. Anthony Burgess, you know, that was a great combination of, for me, like creating a world to the point where there was like Russian vocabulary in it. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a glossary at the end of the book with the words that he had created from like Russian slang and English together. And, um, but, but it also had this dystopian kind of, this was what the world could become like feel. Mm. What was the ninth grade curriculum like when you first started versus today? Yeah, it was, uh, it was, in some ways, the same um, Shakespeare and Dickens, but um, with the uh, with the autonomy to teach whatever Shakespeare and whatever Dickens you wanted to. So over the years, I've taught different plays and different Dickens books. But then we used to do To Kill a Mockingbird, um, Fences by August Wilson. Um, that might have been yeah. I think that was it was like uh, Shakespeare first quarter, Dickens second quarter, To Kill a Mockingbird third quarter, and fences fourth quarter mm-hmm. so we've increased the number of books that we're teaching oh at the time we would do supplemental reading so i would have a book each quarter that i thought paired well with the book that we were studying in class and the students had to read it during that quarter on their own oh i like that yeah that was kind of cool so i could pair like animal farm with the tale of two cities and yeah so you know Stuff like that. Um, I think that got to be a little much for the students to be reading two books for English while they were trying to um, juggle their other courses. So that kind of went away. But we now teach more books during the year. So instead of just two books in the second semester, I'm still teaching Fences. I'm not teaching To Kill Mockingbird anymore. Fences, Between the World and Me, um, Everything I Never Told You, which is an Elizabeth Ng, or sorry, a Celeste Ng um, kind of mystery and the Laramie project. Hmm. Um, everything I've never told you. Um, yeah, I'm curious how the ninth grade curriculum chooses the, the text for the year because it obviously changes every you know couple of years. Is right. there just a group conversation or what? What types of themes or ideas are you looking for in the ninth grade curriculum? So if there's a guiding uh, theme in the ninth grade curriculum, it's empathy, uh, which is very broad and really allows us to do all sorts of, um, consider all sorts of stories. But that's sort of where we begin. We want the students to be able to imagine themselves in stories and imagine themselves in character shoes and be able to relate um, what they're reading to themselves and our world today. so it's very broad strokes. We are, we're also trying to make sure that students are getting um, able to see themselves in the literature, no matter you know where, what their background might be. So having a, a, repre- a, a having representation from the LGBTQ community, the Asian American community, 
um, that was important. And that didn't used to happen. Mm -hmm. Right. Hmm. So it diversified the curriculum it and you know, changed in certain ways. Um, since the time you started teaching ninth grade uh, English at Gilman till now, what are maybe what are the reasons that you've stuck with the ninth grade as kind of your um, I would guess that that's your favorite like age to teach your favorite group to teach ninth sure. grade. Yeah. Uh, is that true? Yeah, I taught American Lit for a little while, and um, I've always had the senior electives to pair with, but mostly English nine sections. You're right. Um, wow, gosh, what's cool about it? I, I guess um, really being the is in terms of the English department really being a student's introduction to upper school, so helping them bridge middle school to upper school. Um, I don't know, there's something still very um, innocent, I guess, in terms of uh, where they're coming from. Um, maybe innocent is the wrong word. Uh, unworldly, which or not being worldly. Um, and there's a, there's a really, a, a, a real, I get a real pleasure from being able to say, okay, so now here's upper school English. This is what you've been doing. Here's here's how this is going to be different. And to be honest with you, the the LA program in the middle school does a lot of the same. You know, stresses, builds the same skills, and 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 seeks to instill the same sort of principles and ideas. So, in some ways, it's not a big transition, but in other ways, I think asking them to go below the text and really consider um, um, how they relate to a to a text personally and um, maybe maybe going going that next step deeper is, is the biggest thing mm -hmm. yeah so you read a couple of plays in your classes and you're a playwright yourself and it's obviously a passion of yours um, I'd love some help even in some of the plays that I read in my junior and senior Curriculums. We read all my sons in, yeah. in my leadership and character class, and death of a salesman, um, and a few more. And what are some of your strategies and your teaching style that like allows you to effectively teach plays and you know maybe some strategies for for teaching sure, sure. theater in the classroom? Well, uh, first and foremost, I'd say you got to get it up on its feet. So I taped out a stage in my third floor classroom you know just with mr flint's help we we taped out a little thrust stage on the floor and we've got the students sitting around the edges of the uh, stage like audience members and then we get up and we act out scenes so i think that's that's that would be the first thing most plays are meant to be not that they don't work being read uh, as, as literature i think they can and they do but most are meant to be acted out mm -hmm. so that'd be the first thing um, the second thing I would say is it's great to take a, a student and say, okay, you you're, you were playing this character the last time we did it, now switch and play this other character. Mm -hmm. And so you're literally putting them in the shoes of another character so they can see a different perspective. Hmm. That's pretty cool. And then if you throw in all the technical elements, like, okay, well, if you were designing the lights for this scene, what would the lights look like? And what, what sound would you have playing in the background? And describe the costumes and the props and you know, um, really get them to almost uh, create the world or imagine the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have some, um, sometimes I have difficulty when students, sometimes they don't love reading the actual sure. play, but when you come into the classroom and you either show like something visual or act it out, it really does bring it to life and you can actually talk about it at that point because 
you see parts of the stage direction or mannerisms that you wouldn't have picked up on yeah yeah if you're just reading and improv can work um if i have uh, a couple students that aren't crazy about getting up and reading from the script i might say okay well let's don't worry about the scripts let's improv a scene where you're a father and you're you're the son right and you're coming home and you've done something that your dad's not happy with and and let's see what happens and go you know and so sometimes that works to get to the same or to get to a point that intersects with what they would have been reading Mm -hmm. yeah you think that the improv would work really well in the junior curriculum because i always have troubles with with the girls and the boys in the classroom for the same time especially the class i teach today it's still Sure. kind of an awkward air in there yeah. but that that would be the perfect way to help loosen up the room and get people comfortable with each other sure there are a lot of fun warm-up games that i do there was one we were doing poetry in my i start the year with a poetry unit um before shakespeare and uh, uh there's a game an improv game called rhyme time where you get um you get two people two volunteers and the uh i guess the structure of the game is it's a wrestling match like a WWE wrestling match, but instead of physical wrestling, it's wrestling with words. And so you get two volunteers and you get a word from the audience, like blue, and then they start insulting one another. And, and the only rule is that their uh, the last word of their sentence has to rhyme with the word from the audience. So I might say, Mr. Scott, I'm gonna beat you till you're back black and blue. And then you would say, this is a day that, Mr. Malchus, you're going to rue. Nice, right. And then we just keep going back and forth. So that's a great, for poetry, that works well as, a, like, as like a warm-up. But the principles of like yes and and improv, you know, you're always yes anding. Any, anything that anybody gives you on stage, you're never saying no. Mm-hmm. You're, you're saying yes, and then you're adding to it. Uh, that's, a, I mean, that's good life advice. Yeah. Yeah, so improv, how did you get into it in the first place? Sure. Um, there was an improv group at my, when I was an undergraduate at Towson University, I eventually transferred, sorry, I eventually transferred to uh, to Brooklyn College, but I did three years at Towson first, and there was an improv group that performed in the student union uh, every Wednesday at lunch. They were called Yet to Be Named Improv, and they were theater majors, and they were older. I was... I was like a freshman or sophomore, and these were juniors and seniors, and they had taken a few classes as part of their program. I think I was an English major at the time or an education major. And, um, you know, I just went and watched and fell in love with what they were doing and how they were able to do it. It blew my mind that they could be putting these scenes together, and none of it was written down. And um, I eventually declared myself a theater major and started taking some classes. And even though it's improv, there are some important principles that you learn that enable you to look like what you're doing is, you know, like effortless. Mm-hmm. But there are guiding principles that that really facilitate that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because um, the improv or the theater, like we, the summer at Breadloaf, we had a, a class where the professor brought in the acting crew and their whole s- task was to get everyone up and doing improv and working together to, I guess, foster a theater-like environment. And it was so fascinating to me watching some people in the room were super into it and, you know, they bought in right away. Other people in the room 
shut down right away. They didn't want any part of it. You right. know, they weren't going to snap their fingers. They weren't going to dance around the room. They shut it down. <laughs> right, right. So, yeah, there's nothing to hide behind when you're doing improv. There's no character that you're playing. It's just you. And, um, and, and that can be really uh, intimidating. And, and also to say yes to everything. I mean, there are some suggestions uh, that you might get from a partner and there, or there might be roads that you don't want to go down, but, um, but you can't say no. Yeah. So it's just part of it. It can be intimidating. It's the hardest thing I've ever done in terms of acting and theater improv by far, but it's also the best training and the most rewarding stuff you can do. So you're, you're from Maryland originally. Can you t talk a little bit about your upbringing here and, and where you went to high school and what your high school experience was like? I will. I will. I went, uh, grew up in Essex, uh, eastern Baltimore County, went to public school, Baltimore County Public School, um, and really had a transformative experience in high school with, um, with uh, an English teacher named Nancy Powell Krausky. We called her Miss Powell. And uh, similar to Gilman, there wasn't a... There wasn't a high school theater department, but there were English teachers that directed plays and every once in a while would teach a class when they could. Um, but they did all of that outside of their English teaching duties. So um, Ms. Powell was that person. She directed a, a, a fall play and a spring musical every year and taught uh, English. And so she, you know, she was, um, I can remember listening to morning announcements as a ninth grader and I, I was not gonna be an athlete but um, a friend and I decided that we would go audition for the play that we heard that they were doing. And the two of us went in together so that, you know, we wouldn't be uh, alone. And we both got cast in little tiny parts in that fall play. And it was a similar kind of uh, thing as to Gilman in that you would, you know, you sort of pay your dues and work your way up and you play bigger parts. And it just became my extracurricular activity of, of choice. And by the time you get to be junior or senior, you're playing bigger parts. And, and it's kind of, um, I don't know, it, it became a big part of my identity. Hmm. And outside of school, uh, are there ways, were there ways when you were growing up, or are there ways now for students to like work on their theater or, or their, you know, I'm used to talking about athletics and you play for a club team yeah. or you play for another team. Like, what's the equivalent of that in, in the theater world? Oh, that's a great question. There are ways. Uh, most of it centers around um, community theater. And Baltimore was partly because of its geographic position, geographical position between D.C. and Philly and New York. Baltimore had a really, has always had a very active community theater scene. And community theater basically just means volunteer theater. Um, and so these are spaces that, um, you know, most of them have their roots in the uh, early to mid-1900s. These community theaters were formed. Some of them even go back further than that. And it's just regular people who have a love of theater that um, give up their evenings and weekends to, you know, pick a play, pick a season of plays and, you know, pick directors and have auditions and cast them and people produce the plays they show up they build sets they they gather costumes and all that and there's a real range you know there are community theaters that <clears throat> are 100 percent volunteer and now we sort of have a second tier of community theater in baltimore that's like semi-professional that pays kind of uh, the people involved a stipend but it's not enough to you know make your living at that and then we have the the professional like center stage and an everyman kind of equity 
union houses. But but that's the way if you're uh, if you're not going to study it in college, you can um, audition for these community theaters, get cast. Um, we offer at the one that I'm a member of, Fells Point Corner Theater. We offer education classes, so we have a acting classes for kids, acting classes for adults. Hmm. And how often do you participate in that? That's um, my wife is the board president, so I participate quite frequently. <laughs> I'm not acting much anymore. I used to do that. I used to act quite a bit, uh, but it's so time intensive to to you know to teach and and then have a, another full time job at night. Right. Um, I used to have that energy, but I, I don't anymore. So mostly what I'm doing now is producing. So I'm like the guy who is uh, the person who is facilitating, you know. Um, getting auditions lined up and finding someone to build the set and going somewhere to get a costume, that kind of thing. Hmm. So at Gilman, um, what was your role in terms of like the plays and the musicals throughout your career? Uh, I know Mr. Rao, John Rao, runs the musical now, uh, directs the musical, but over the course of your career here at Gilman, like how have you kind of been... Um, active as a as a uh, director yeah sure so there have been a few plays um that we've done in the fall it's gotten trickier because Bryn Mawr and Roland Park now produce fall musicals Mm -hmm. so sometimes there aren't enough boys to produce a a fall play while the two girls schools are casting our students in musicals so it's tricky um but in the past I've directed um um, Rhinoceros by Eugene Ionesco. We did that one in Centennial Hall. That was my first play as a director, and that was probably 10 or 15 years ago now. We did um, Bloxy Blues by Neil Simon. We did that in Centennial Hall as well, smaller, more intimate space. And then Miss Carper and I directed uh, Samuel Beckett's Waiting for Godot mm-hmm. in the auditorium. That was probably the most recent one. Um, I want to say there's another one, but I can't remember. So Nothing near the scale of what Mr. Rao's done. It's sort of the fall play has become kind of a catch-as-catch-can. Like if we happen to have an, uh, you know, the willing students to uh, that want to do it that aren't in the musicals. Right. Yeah, you get out, you put out the feelers and yeah. see who can make it out. How many people do you really need, do you think, to put on a play? I guess it depends on what you're doing. but Yeah, it does. There were five people in Waiting for Godot. That was our smallest cast. Um and so, so with Biloxi Blues, it was more, it was, you know, six, seven, eight. And Rhinoceros had a large cast. Um, but I have plans. <laughs> I have plans if we ever do, the next time we find ourselves with a surplus of, of actors in the fall, or, or that I can sort of um, maybe talk to Miss Carper the spring before. Anyway, there's a play, there's a great company called the Reduce Shakespeare Company that, that have written a bunch of fun plays One's called The Complete Works of Shakespeare Abridged, where they do all the plays of Shakespeare in two hours. Oh, my gosh. But it's abridged, so you get a line or two from... You've really got to know your Shakespeare. It's pretty funny. And mostly Act 1 is Romeo and Juliet, and Act 2 is Hamlet, but, but there are other... Anyway, they also wrote one called The Complete History of America Abridged, which is hysterically funny that I was in years ago, and I was thinking it would be a really fun show to direct hmm. here at Gilman, and it only requires three actors. What do they include in that play? Um, the, you start with the founding of the country, um, and how you know, for instance, how th- they're very witty and they're very um, 
sensitive, these, these three writers. So what you're getting is a, a critique of the way American history has been told. Right. So, like, there's this whole song about Amerigo Vespucci, mm-hmm. where, you know, America takes our name. Uh, so we start there, the play starts there, and then it goes through, gosh, um, there's a lot of time spent on Watergate and, like, Vietnam and, um, I guess, highlights from American history. But in a very, you know, in a very um, critical way in terms of, uh, you know, some of the uh, sensitive issues that our country hasn't always done a great job with. So. So my plan is that maybe ask Ms. Carper if she'd be interested in co-directing again when we find our three actors. Right. Yeah, that reminds me of uh, the play Mr. Rao Teaches Assassins, which, sure. which always interested me. I read it one year, and I was thinking about maybe teaching it, but I've always been super into the presidents and presidential trivia sure. and just having that, you know, the background about each of these assassins, Wilkes Booth and... The uh, James Garfield right. part is fascinating to me because it wasn't technically the gunshot that killed him. It was the people reaching their hands into his wound. Oh, I didn't know that. Without antiseptic and, and um, you know, knowing much about germs. Yeah, then. that'll do it. Yeah, so <laughs> I thought that was fascinating. Yes, um, Soundheim is, uh, I mean, gosh, he is uh, American musical theater. Yeah. Um, uh, so what do you think when you, I guess, fell in love with acting and plays, what do you think it is about plays that really captivates you? Well, it sounds, I think it sounds a little repetitive, but, um, I was never interested in being a director, really. I'm happy to do it here at school, but I've always wanted to act. And it's the idea of putting on a, a character and being able to experience life through a person that's different than you are, usually, not always, but usually very different. Um, and that idea of so I don't know if you if you find yourself crying when you're reading or crying when you watch a movie or I mean I'm just like a big pile of tears mostly of emotion that's welling out of me the few times that I've tried to you know speak in front of people in the auditorium I find myself I get really emotional Mm -hmm. and it's usually a really not always but usually even when it's really positive yeah Um, and I like to think that it has to do with some appreciation of you know the magnificence of life and how fortunate we all are but all that being said um being an actor is one way, if you're sensitive like that, of really putting that to great use. Yeah. You know? Yeah. The empathy, I mean, the empathy component that's central to your course it makes a lot of sense. It does. It does. It's a really, really, really great outlet for that. Hmm. So in your free time, how much time do you spend on, I guess, researching plays and reading plays? And if you were going to pick up a book or... or any type of literature would it be a play like what what types of ways do you incorporate that into your outside world i guess i do read a lot of plays um but mostly that's to whether we're going to consider them to be produced um although you know occasionally a play like angels in america will come along uh, or a musical like assassins that really begs for consideration in the literary genre as well as hey this is a play we want to see produced 
um, this is a play I just want to sit down and read. Um, but but no, when I pick up a book, um, gosh, I think it, it's usually either through some sort of recommendation, um, colleagues uh, going to conferences um, and hearing hearing people talk about books that have been formational, uh, transformational to them. Um, I have favored authors. Like whenever I get a chance and I don't have to read anything, if Stephen King has new, written a new book, I will buy that book. And really? Sit and read it. So I haven't read too much Stephen King. I've got every one of his books. What's your favorite? The Stand. The Stand. Yeah. The Stand is about a super flu that mm-hmm. has disseminated the earth and there are, there are two camps of survivors left. And it's like a, it's like the good versus evil. It's it's a wonderful book, thick, really thick book. Yeah. Um, but the other author I collect is Kurt Vonnegut, so he's another big. Um, What's your favorite Vonnegut? Oh gosh, I like his. He's I think I think he only wrote one play, which is called Happy Birthday, Wanda June. So um, he's not a dramatist, but he wrote a play, and it's really good. Um, Cat's Cradle, probably. Yeah, I've never read that. What is Cat's Cradle about? Oh gosh, it's um, it's it explores some of the same themes that all of Vonnegut's work explores. You know, he's so good at turning the light on different parts of society and critiquing them. You know, he's such a good satirist in terms of pointing out the hypocritical nature of authority and. Um, but also, so that's like one level of his work, and on another level, it's very, he's really able to be poignant and get to the heart of human relationships. So his books work on different levels, which is what I love about him. There's a short story by him that I taught in my uh, short story class last year. Is it Harrison Bergeron? Harrison Bergeron, that's, yeah. that's an amazing story. It's a great story. There's a, a short movie that's like 20 minutes long on on the internet somewhere and I showed that too and does a pretty good job of I'll have to check depicting all the weights that Harrison has to wear right. and yep. yeah yeah it's an incredible story it really is but I know there's a Vonnegut documentary somewhere I think I have seen a few of those you have yep and recently for burn book week uh, there's a there's a video link I sent to the um, to the librarians who then sent it out to the English department and it's it's um Benedict Cumberbatch reading the letter that Kurt Vonnegut sent the Drake School Board in North Dakota in 1973 when they banned um, Slaughterhouse Five. Interesting. Yeah, and so his, you know, this was one of the first times that Vonnegut had been banned, and I think what prompted the letter was that not only did this school board ban the books, they threw the books they banned into the school incinerator and they burned them. Mm. So. Vonnegut wrote a letter uh, um, talking about why that's awful. <laughs> what, what are some of the things he says in the letter? Well, he just says that he basically uses a letter to say, I, th- I think you're under a bunch of misconceptions about me and my work. And he talks about how you must think that at the heart of my work, I want to introduce kids to like, you know, things that you don't want them learning about. And maybe, maybe like sex or drugs or profanity he said at the heart of all of his books is that the message that we have to be kinder to one another Mm -hmm. Um, so that's the thing that I took away but this letter uh, is basically him saying you might have some misconceptions about me let me tell you about myself and he's a he's got the purple heart you know he's a decorated combat infantryman infantryman 
Oh, I didn't know he had a Purple Heart. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He was, he survived the bombing of Dresden, which basically is where Slaughterhouse Five came mm. Yeah, the band book entire thing is fascinating to me because all of the books that we're, we've been talking about, Catcher in the Rye and some of the other ones you've mentioned, they were all at some point bands. It's true. Sure. Um, That's a, one of the things he says in this letter is, uh, my publisher and I are not celebrating the fact that you've banned my book, even though it's going to result in thousands and thousands of copies being sold of this book that you have banned. And so he says, we're not... We're not capitalizing on that. We're not gloating about that. Uh, anyway, yeah, you're right. I wonder if there's someone who has, I don't know, What are you, do you have certain opinions about banned books? I mean, I probably take the side that says you should read what, I, that, like all books should be available for people to read, but I'd wonder hearing from someone on the opposing side of that discussion. Right. So the closest I can get to that is we had a conversation in the English department you, I'm sure, were part of this um, probably five to ten years ago. Um, we, in, in my teaching of, like, To Kill a Mockingbird, for instance, you know, my, um, when I first started teaching that book, I thought, you know, it has the N-word. And then I taught Huckleberry Finn when I was teaching American Lit, which is also rife with the N-word. Um, um, at the time, when I first started teaching these, these works, I thought wow, you know, it's probably really important for students to hear these words so that they can understand how awful this is and maybe why we should never do this again and say this. <clears throat> um, and so it, Mike Molina came on to the English faculty a few years ago, and Mike had a story about that he told his students, I think in American Lit, having to do with Huckleberry Finn, and he talked about how that word, the M-word, triggered him specifically because of an experience that he had when he was a young boy. Mm-hmm. And he tells he would tell that, and there was a stoop story, Baltimore stoop story that Mike did. That's uh, you can find on the internet, where he talks about what that word. Every time he hears that word, what he relives in his head, and so it made me think differently about the work, and that I don't have the right to, you know, re-traumatize someone just because I think it's important to recognize how awful this word is, you know? So, so we have sensitive language policies now, and I think that's, speaking personally, that was so important for me to, um, to wrap my head around, and so important for my students that now they understand that they don't have to worry about hearing that word read aloud in class. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah it's a, that conversation that we had has always interested me with, you know, Mike's opinions in, in that um conversation some other people's opinions and things that i'd never really thought of before it gets complicated in a classroom setting because of that discussion between harm versus intent which i I think is filled with a lot of different people have different thoughts on you know well we're reading a book it's not intended to hurt anyone yet some people would say well it does anyway so right um but yeah i i mean i've i've thought a lot about that issue and there's a 60 minutes, I think, on, I think it's on um, Huckleberry Finn, and it has, you know, should, you know, should people read this book, and that, especially that word, the N-word, you know, it affects certain people uh, when they hear it or read it, and, you know, there are two, there are different sides on all of these issues, which 
makes them not very easy, but the, we do have in the English department the sensitive language yeah. policy, which... Um, and so to go back to your question about banned books, I certainly would want people to have the... I want people to have free, the freedom to be exposed to any idea that they choose to read about, and I don't think we should necessarily limit the opportunities of what they will read, but, I, but in a school setting it's probably important that we take some time to think about, like you said, um, intent versus harm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so going back to your career here at Gilman and uh, teaching in the English department, what have been, I guess, some of your favorite books or plays to teach? What, what, what do you really get passionate or excited about teaching every year? So uh, thanks. That's a great question. I teach the first semester senior uh, elective called Writers in Revolt, which is a class I inherited from Jeff Christ, who was department head before Patrick, and I think he inherited from a predecessor. But anyway, the, the, the great part of the class, I think, is that it really encourages students to uh, embrace the role of re rebel and revolter and push back against society's expectations and norms that may seem unfair or unjust to them. And we read literature that, came, that comes out of different points of time and place where writers were pushing back on norms that seemed unfair or unjust to them. So, you know, the play we start with in the, uh, that we're reading now is in The Normal Heart, which is an early 80s play by Larry Kramer that was um, written when AIDS was exploding in New York City. And despite the fact that gay men were uh, dying at an alarming rate from a disease that nobody could wrap their head around, the world at large, the city of New York, the mayor's office, the medical community, the media, wanted very little to do with it because it seemed to only be affecting IV drug users and gay men. So so um, there's a lot of, um, uh, of injustice in there that, you know, the play was written to address. So and then we read The Awakening by Kate Chopin, which is like 1899, about a woman in New Orleans who wants to be more than just a wife and a mother in all of the, the ways that society says, no, no, that's it. That's all you can do. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, and we do a satire unit, which is one of my favorites, right? Using satire to, to point out the foibles of, of society and the hypocrisy. Um, so that's, that's definitely one of my favorites, um, that class. And then the students, um, as we're going through, they engineer a revolt they decide on something they want to revolt against. Hmm. And they do that throughout the semester. And there are like five phases that they have to hit. And we learn about different revolt techniques they might consider using. And they gather data. And, and then they have a revolt. Let me guess the dress code is a big favorite. <laughs> it has been. I've tried to uh, try to dissuade them because there isn't, there isn't much more that can, you know, it's pretty lax now, it's to pretty, be honest. It's pretty lax. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Yeah. Um, but but they do, some do get up in arms. But we've had some great revolts over the years. There was a revolt by, and it's a it's a coordinated class. So we've had uh, young women that's pushed that have pushed back about some really interesting things: reproductive rights, um, stigma around birth control pills, um, you know, high, uh, feminine hygiene products in the bathrooms here at Gilman. All sorts of um, of, of great. Ideas have come out. Um, Thomas Booker, who's now, I think, 
been drafted on an NFL team. His revolt a few years ago was about how how unfair it is to be an NCAA athlete in a high-profile sport like football and not be able to profit in any way from your name, image, and likeness. Hmm. And then he went to Stanford, and three years later, right. Uh, so he's he's a little bitter because he missed out on it, but oh yeah, I'm sure he's uh, he'll do fine. Um, but uh, but yeah, so sometimes it's fun to watch the revolts. Actually, you know, it's clear that other people are thinking the same thing around the yeah country. That's so interesting because it feels like for a couple of years at least, at least when I was paying attention, especially when Johnny Manziel was playing and he was like the biggest, and T- Tim Tebow. Uh-huh. They're like the biggest quarterbacks and, you know, selling out arenas and they couldn't right. make money at all on their likeness or their jerseys or whatever. And it just seems like that switch flipped so quickly. And then it was like, all right, you guys are fine. And it's like. I think the flipping, the, the speed at which that switch flipped is, I think, directly correlates to how ridiculous it was that these schools and divisions were making tens of millions of dollars. Right. Uh, and and the students weren't making a penny. I mean, they were getting a free education. But even that, I mean, just to listen to Thomas talk about what it means to be a D1 football player in terms of taking class and then doing everything else mm-hmm. that is expected of you because you're on scholarship, you have very little of the normal college experience or the traditional college experience. It's more like a job. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And you may know that, Mr. Scott. Yeah, yeah, maybe not to the extent of a um, you know, Stanford football player, but pretty similar. I mean, it's it's you know, it takes up your whole life almost, so. Right. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't think I would have made any money if I was, you know, if I was allowed to, but you know, I think people should be able to in college oh, yeah. for sure. Absolutely. Um, so you came up with that course. That's no, no, I inherited that course. I have tweaked it over the years. Yeah. The literature is mine that we read now, and the project sort of existed, but I, I nailed it down so that there are benchmarks that have to be hit so that there's no way at the end of the semester that a, you know, a senior can cannot have spent a substantial amount of time thinking about this and doing stuff. So I like, I'm very proud of, of, of structuring that course. But the idea came from others. Yeah. And have you created other electives in, in the past? I'm glad you asked that. I created a, um, an elective called Gay and Lesbian Literature a few years back that we ran for about three years, and then um, we haven't run it um, for two years now. There hasn't been interest, um, but um, but that was a really that was a I think a really important thing that happened, and that just happened because there were some there was a critical mass of students that were clearly looking for a class where they could see themselves and that didn't currently exist um and so yeah so we put i put that together and you have a book recommendation that you brought in that you used in this class i do it's by our own mr john rowell and John wrote this, uh, it's a collection of short stories, it's called The Music of Your Life, and uh, this was one of the books that we read when he was applying to be the Tickner Fellow, hmm. which is how Mr. Rao started at Gilman, and it is a beautiful book, um, and it's, you know, going back to what I said about tears, there are, there are four stories in here that I taught that uh, without fail would make me cry every time we discuss them in class, including the 
the um, the story that the collection is named for, The Music of Your Life, which is one of the best stories and maybe the only story I've ever read written in second person. Oh, interesting. That is incredibly effective at, at what it aims to do. Hmm. So I'm going to have to check it out. Yeah, check it out. Oh, that's great. What is your other recommendation? Oh, so this is uh, Ross Gay. This is He's a poet. That It's funny. We had him at Gilman years ago, earlier in his career. One of the Tickner Fellows brought him in as a writer at work. And he's a National Book Award poet. Um, yeah, National Book Critics Circle Award and a National Book Award finalist. Anyway, he's a poet. Um, he's a black man, and he came to Gilman early in his career as a guest in the Writers at Work series. And you know, he um, there was some pushback after he read here about his uh, affect as he read. So he seen he had a hoodie, and he had his hoodie pulled up, and he seemed to be. I don't know if he made a comment. I'm trying to remember if he said he was hungover, but but he made you know, he was. Um, he, he read his poetry, and his poetry was wonderful, but I think he did it in such a way that ruffled the feathers of some of the, some of the uh, administration, perhaps, and faculty. And um, Ross Gay has gone on to, now he's a professor at, the, at Indiana Bloomington, and he wrote this book called The Book of Delights, which is not poetry. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's a daily... He wrote, he wrote a short essay a day. Right. They're like a page long. Yeah. And it's just, it, like, like the title suggests, um, delights that he noticed in his everyday life. So he's a gardener and he loves food. And so many of the essays are about the plants that are growing in his garden or something that he ate. Um, but, and, and a lot of them are about his experience as a gay man and, or sorry, as a black man. And, um, they're just uh, they're just wonderful because uh, they they kind of get you to stop, slow down, and and they encourage he encourages the reader to find the delights every day in their life, no matter what, mm-hmm. um, to pay attention. So that's another favorite. Great, thank you. Sure. Yeah, that's interesting because um, I was thinking about uh, I've been using some gratitude in my classroom a little bit last year too, and it's very tough to. I don't know. I just wouldn't respond well if someone was like, you know, write down what you're grateful for. Like, I just, I don't know. Sure. I don't think that that comes off that well. But I think actually the research on gratitude and why it's becoming like it's one of the, um, you know, ways to like boost your self-esteem and just overall happiness in life is to reflect and and find some gratitude uh, the best way to do that is to describe something like very small in detail, like write a you know page like this about yeah. something very minor in your life that's giving you pleasure or happiness. Yep. And I sometimes do that in my classes, like just think about one little thing and, and write a page about what exactly is it about, you know, your mother's breakfast or your father's whatever, your, your math teacher's uh teaching style that you like so much and I think it can I mean I don't do it as consistently as I should I'm doing other things but but I think it definitely has a affected probably affected Roske in a really like great way despite the you know the book yeah yeah. just in his personal life yeah yeah 
and and, and I, I'm really, it's, I'm fascinated by the Ross Gay that came to Gilman that we all met 20 years ago, and the Ross Gay that wrote this book. Yeah, um, he clearly has had a journey that has resulted in his being able to take delight in the smallest things on a daily basis. Yeah, for sure. Well, thanks for bringing those in. Sure. Um, so maybe a couple more questions. Yeah, sure, today? sure, sure. Um, so Larry, um, just thinking about Gilman and being here and, and teaching here for for a little while. What is it that like is so important to you about Gilman as a place? And uh, like, what do you, I guess, love best about the school? Oh my gosh, it sounds so corny, Mr. Scott, <laughs> Jake. <laughs> but uh, uh, it really is the people in that. Um, uh, if I didn't enjoy the people that I got to interact with on a daily basis, um, it, it would be it would not be the job it is to me today. Which is, um, I I look forward to coming to work most days. The variety that we are allowed to experience on a daily basis, in terms of what the school asks us to do, but also in some cases allows us to do. Um, really makes the time fly by. For instance, you know, I got a, a master's in school counseling, but if I were a school counselor at a public school, that's all I would get to do would be to, you know, sit in the guidance office and 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 be a counselor. Uh, one of the things I love about Gilman is the ability to teach uh, various grade levels, uh, propose classes um, based on interests, um, coach, uh, I coach intramural you know, uh, flag football, ultimate frisbee. Currently, um, and that frisbee looks fun. It is. It's a good time, and and a theater intramural with Mr. Rao every winter. That's, uh, you know, the, I think the closest thing we have to a theater curriculum here at Gilman, um, and that's when I get to share what I love about improv with students. Um, and then you know, you know that we have advisees that we get to hang out with for four years. That's a pretty neat way to get to know a student. Um, great relationship to have and uh, uh yeah you know it's um I, I think just like it's a gift to attend here as a student in many ways i feel like it's a gift to teach here yeah i agree small classes i mean yeah now is there any ways that you feel like gilman has changed over the course of you, your career for better or for worse that you you've identified I haven't thought about that um, in terms of being able to put my finger on things, but I can tell you in terms of um, focus on community and inclusion and equity and um, and the way Gilman has reacted to um, the times when our community, whether it's the country or Baltimore or our school community, has fallen short. Um, uh, the, the, I don't think I can over under, overstate the, the leadership of Mr. Smythe and Mr. Hubeck uh, in terms of me being proud uh, and and believing that Gilman's heart is in the right place, mm-hmm. you know that's um, that has changed. Um, but I don't know if that's. I th- I'd like to think Gilman was founded on principles that have evolved and and are now have now evolved to where they need to be for today's world. Um, not that that was a given that they would. Um, so I think it's a real. A tribute to the leadership of the school and the, our colleagues and the staff that um, Gilman is a place I hope where kids um, and, and adults feel like they belong no matter what 
Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I feel like the way the school has responded to so many unexpected and very fast-moving changes in the country with the pandemic, um, and just thinking about our jobs and educating students and giving them the skills that they're going to need in the world, especially a world where you know things happen so so fast with technology, it's pretty daunting of a task. But uh, I I agree that Gilman administrative administration and just the school has done a great job responding to you know pretty we've lived through some wild times these past couple of years right and the tri-school i think it's really important that the tri-schools have um committed to staying you know in this consortium academically i love having co-ed classes for those last two years i think it's really important for the students and uh, as much as you know sometimes i might not want to go coach um, and, and believe me, I know as an intramural coach, compared to an interscholastic coach, I'm carrying a very light load. But it is it is absolutely true that the the things, the principles that I get to model and put into practice and, and, and insist on others putting into practice on the field uh, or in the rehearsal room are the same principles that we're trying to, you know, pull out of the literature and um, help us all become better human beings you know, empathy and sportsmanship and all those things. Um, you know, uh, I find myself doing that on the ultimate Frisbee field. Yeah, it's so interesting. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think that's very true. I, uh, I was really into the U.S. Open this year, watching all the tennis matches, and I thought it was so impressive at the, uh, the final game uh, between Carlos Alcaraz and uh, uh, what's Rude's first name? Casper uh, Rude. Okay. Uh, they had the trophy presentation, and you know they give the runner-up prize to Casper Rude, and then the trophy to uh, Carlos Alcaraz. And both um, players were allowed to speak for a little bit. And you know, one's from Norway, one's from Spain, and they both. This was on 9/11, acknowledging 9/11 in front of the United States, and. You couldn't really tell, honestly, who the winner and the loser was from the words they were saying. And I just think that was such a perfect example of how sports can like model a lot of these principles that we're, we're trying to teach here. They come through in those, in those moments. So that really, I tried to show that to some of my classes because it, it was impressive. Yeah, right. Um, but yeah, so you guys out on the Frisbee? What is it? The field? I don't know. If it's the frisbee pitch or the field. Yeah, we are. We're, we're looking forward to it. To it. Cool. Well, um, Mr. Malkus, thank you very much for coming in. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Oh, thank you, Mr. Scott. I appreciate it. Awesome.